This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. If you've paid attention, well, I mean, if you have not been under a rock for the last 12, 14, 18, 20 months, whatever the time frame is, you have heard the phrase fake news, whether it's from the American president or whether it's from any other number of places. You have heard fake news or some variation of that term. It's probably the phrase of the year last year, the word of the year. Well, now to combat what some countries are seeing as the scourge of fake news, there are places that are planning to go beyond just saying, hey, that's bad news, that's not good news, that's wrong news, that's inaccurate news. Rather than doing that, there are countries now that are saying, we are actually going to usurp the freedom of the internet to block you from receiving fake news. It's under the guise, I guess, of we are protecting you. But France and Brazil, for example, two of the countries leading the charge on this one, not the kind of places that you would think of as the home of dictators or despots or someone else. There's a story out this week says, First France, now Brazil, unveil plans to empower the government to censor the internet in the name of stopping fake news. It is, um, well, to me, the only word that I think of when I start reading things like this is it's terrifying that we're suddenly now going to be having seemingly government groups, government bodies, whatever else, getting involved in censoring the internet. Joining me to talk about this, a guy we love to turn to whenever we have issues to do with the web or things along these lines. Alan Mendelson is a lawyer who specializes in internet law. Now, late last year, in fact, he authored a report on freedom of the internet. He joins me now. Alan, thanks for doing this today. Uh, my pleasure as always, Scott. How are you? I'm great, but I'm I'm puzzled by this. Should, first of all, should I be surprised that countries are starting to do this? I, I probably shouldn't be. Oh, goodness, no. Uh, you know, it, and it's not just the fake news area, countries, governments in general are taking all sorts of action in terms of blocking things that they may not necessarily perceive to be something that they want their citizens to view. I mean, for, you know, at the very minimal, for example, Sweden blocks certain copyright piracy websites, you know, and I could go on and on. So it's not just fake news. There's all sorts of issues. Uh, incidents where governments are taking sort of proactive action because they think that blocking websites is the only way to go about this. But I get this. I kind. I mean, I expect this if it's North Korea or Russia or China or pick your other place where you might say there is a, an authoritarian government in place. I don't expect this when it's France and Brazil and Sweden. Sure. I, I, I agree with you. Would you expect it from the Quebec government? For example, recently in the Quebec National Assembly, there was a uh, law introduced that would have ISPs block or require ISPs to block certain gambling websites. Whether you agree with gambling websites or not, um, and this bill has not passed yet, and it's a long way from passing, but it's happening right here in your own backyard. And under what, what's the reason? Is it because the taxes are not being paid? Is it because they say people are being ripped off? What would be the reason? Some people are quite skeptical about the Quebec government's motives in that the Quebec runs its own, through Lotto Quebec, runs its own sort of quote-unquote, I'll put it in quotes, gambling website, and that they say they are trying to protect the Quebec consumer, but the skeptic will say, well, they want to shut down Quebecers' access to all the other gambling websites, 
so that Quebecers who want to wager money on sporting events, for example, will go to Lotto Quebec website instead. So there's all sorts of motivations for these things. Um, and there has been even discussion recently about, you know, federally, whether we should be blocking um, websites that deal with copyright infringement. So, you know, the, it's happening right here, not just in France and, and Brazil. Is there, though, Alan, is there anything in our law that allows a government to step in and do this, or are they having to make new laws to make this legal-ish for them? Well, they are certainly um, required to write new laws. There's several things that would prevent uh, any Canadian government, whether federally or provincially, from attempting to, to block certain things. I mean, number one is freedom of expression that's guaranteed in the Canadian Charter of Rights. And, you know, so... There's a freedom of expression, a freedom of, you know, you should be able to access what you want and no one should be restricted. And a website is sort of a version. Uh, it's a it's a manifestation of freedom of expression and, and no government entity should be blocking that. Uh, you know, furthermore, the CRTC and the Canadian government generally subscribe to something called net neutrality, which your, you know, your listeners may have heard of recently in the American context, as the American government is looking to repeal its net neutrality laws. And net neutrality in Canada is very entrenched. And part of net neutrality is sort of an open internet generally. And uh, you're going to have to go around certain existing laws, freedom of expression, net neutrality, in order to do some sort of website blocking here in Canada. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Talking net independence, internet independence, there are countries that are now beginning to look into censoring the internet in the name of stopping fake news. Trouble is... Where does it end and where do we start to get concerned? Alan Mendelson, who is an internet lawyer from up the road in Montreal, joins me. Um, Alan, I was just saying before the break that one of the issues here is if you really, if you're a country right now, especially in the West, who really wants to bring in some sort of controls, I'm thinking all you have to do is somehow couch this or put this under the guise of defense or security for the country against terrorism or whatever. And yeah, okay, we're, you know, people will go along with that. Yeah, no, that that is certainly true. Uh, you know, and in, in Canada, we as well have anti-terrorism laws and, and we can, you know, use those. I'm not sure that, you know, limiting freedom of expression by blocking certain Internet websites, whether that you be deem them as fake or not, uh, could really be shown to be anti-terrorist. Uh, you could try. I'm saying you, you got to come up with. Try. You have to come up with some reason why you're doing it if you're a government. And I'm thinking there's the starting yeah, point to at least win over a few people. Certainly. How about the protection of democracy? I mean, that is the argument that is being put forward, even in the United States, for example, as to why private companies like Facebook should be dealing with this matter very seriously. Fake news is a threat to the democratic process. The democratic values are enshrined in both the United States and the Canadian constitutions. And if democracy itself is under attack because of fake news, well, then it is in both the government and the populace's best interest, perhaps, to do something about it. 
so, you know, uh, at the core of, you know, and, and it's now that I think about it from that way, there's a very interesting phrase. The way the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms works is that, yes, there are a bunch of freedoms that you are absolutely supposed to have under the Canadian Charter, including freedom of expression. But the way the Charter works is that even if your freedom of expression is violated, the government can still, quote unquote, justify it. There's a phrase subject only to such reasonable limits prescribed by law as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. That's section one of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedom. So the government can say, look, we understand that this law we're going to pass to block fake news is a violation of your freedom of expression. But we think it's justified in a free and democratic society in order to prevent the deterioration of the democracy itself. Okay, so, okay, but here's where the problem, and that, that it's an obvious thing, and everyone listening right now is asking the same question or thinking the same thing. Who then becomes the arbiter of what is fake? Who then becomes the, the government body that determines what is real or what is fake? Because opinion... Well, you know what? A government now doesn't like an opinion piece that someone has written, and they say, oh, sorry, that's fake news. We've got to take that off. Scott, don't get me wrong. I agree with you 100%. Oh, I know you do. Uh, I am playing devil's advocate. I know you are. Um, but, you know, and that is absolutely the problem with government censorship of any sort, is to who makes those decisions. I spoke earlier about the Canadian, sorry, the Quebec law for blocking gambling websites where the Quebec government says, no, no, it's not us. We're going to turn this over to an independent body or we're going to turn this over to the Internet service providers and let them decide who should be blocking it. So what would you say if the federal government says, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We are going to create an independent body. They are going to be both. They're going to be members of this independent body who are independent. They're going to be liberals, conservatives, NDP, everybody we can get our hands on. It's going to be a completely independent body. We're going to let them do what they want. And it is up to them to decide what's fake news or not. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll believe that when I see it, because there is no <laughs> such thing as an independent person. And here's the, here's the other part that follows that, and that is... Let us say right now that you were someone who is in Canada, you like the government that's in place, and Justin Trudeau was to come forward with this idea and say, I think we should do this to protect democracy, as you point out. That's great as long as the government that you like is in power. You may not like this quite so much when a different government with different points of view and different positions comes in and blocks your stuff now, saying that it's fake news. Sure. No, I, I agree with you. I, I, you know, and, and I think... Everyone will agree, or most people, unless you're a fascist by definition, would agree with government that government censorship of any sort is is wrong. But independent bodies could theoretically already, for example, the CRTC is theoretically an independent body. It acts independently on occasion. It does, you know, act in reaction to requests from the government. But it makes independent decisions as to the broadcasting and telecommunications system in this country. The CRTC is seen by most uh, authors, scholars, legal people, including myself, as not really subject to political influence. So 
it is possible to set up some sort of independent body, whether anyone would believe it's independent or not. And plenty of people will argue that the CRTC is not as well. You know, so, but yes, it's a, a very messy situation that I don't think we want to get involved Well, I'm already over time. I've only got 10 seconds. Could you ever, though, see in Canada happening what's happening now in Brazil and, and France, or are we somehow protected against that? I think there's enough protections here to make sure that it doesn't happen, but let the citizens be vigilant as to what is fake news and what is not. I think that's the important point. Amen. And Alan Mendelson, uh, internet lawyer, uh, internet legal specialist. Always appreciate having you on. Thanks for doing this today. My pleasure as always, Scott. Have a great evening. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. If you're like most of us and you've been across the border at some point in the last whatever, and on your way home, you're popping into Walmart or one of the other stores down there. You will probably see beer for sale in the States, close to the Canadian border, for dirt cheap prices. I mean, shockingly for us, dirt cheap prices. As in 30 bottles or 30 cans for $15 or so. And then you go home, you come here back to Canada, you go to the beer store to buy your own, and the same thing is massively more expensive, shockingly more expensive. We always say, well, why, why are we paying so much for this? You've noticed this, right? Everyone's noticed this. Well, you're not imagining this, first of all. But the part that'll really, I think, get you a little cranky is that it's not the owners and the brewers and all those who are taking the big bite out of you. I mean, you're paying them, of course. But in Canada, guess how much? I asked you this at the top of the show. Now it's your time to answer. Guess how much you are paying of the X dollars, what percent of your case of beer you're paying for taxes? I asked a bunch of people this today. Some people outside the studio here were saying 20%. No, not 20%. Not 30%. Keep going. Not 40%. Across Canada, the average is that we are paying 47% of the cost of a case of beer for taxes. Luke Harford is the president of Beer Canada. It's a group that works with brewers in this country. Uh, he joins me now. Luke, thanks for doing this tonight. Hey, thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me on your show this evening. When I saw 47%, I thought I better get you on here to clarify that was not a typo. Is that actually the real number? We are paying 47% on average of our cost for beer into taxes? That is correct, and uh, that's the reason why we've uh, launched the campaign is that we recognize that um, beer drinkers may not be aware of just how much tax they are paying when they buy a case of beer, half of it going to to government taxation. And we've launched this campaign to raise awareness and get people to uh, share their thoughts on this at axthebeertax.ca. Uh, as, because what's going to happen is uh, April 1st that we're going to see the first increase. The federal government has set in place a mechanism that will drive taxes up each and every single year, regardless of the amount of money that Canadians have in their pockets to pay for beer. Okay, I want to get to that in just a second, but uh, let me just go back to this first because I am—I agree with you that I don't think most people know what percent or what rate of tax they're paying, because I think they'd be screaming if they did. And and again, the people I asked today had no idea that it was this high. Almost every guess I got was 20% or lower. Why do we not know this? Well, because there's, uh, take for example, the federal excise tax. It's a, it's a tax based on production, so the brewer pays it, 
and uh, puts it into the wholesale price, which then goes to the liquor board. The liquor board puts in all their markups, which there's some cost associated with that, but there is a lot of that I would call tax. And then on top of that, they've got GST and PST. So there's a lot of hidden taxes, if you will, in, that, that are in that 47% that consumers are paying. And does that 47% include, let's say I go out to a restaurant with some friends and the restaurant has now bought their beer by bottle or case or keg or whatever else, they've paid the taxes on that. And now I go and I buy a beer and my beer is whatever, and I have to pay tax on top of that. Is that included in the 47 or is that the government taxing the tax? That's every, every province is just a little bit different, but there's a lot of tax on that beer that they, the bars and restaurants would purchase, and then they've got to put their markup on it and GST and PST on top of that. So, yeah, it is definitely a, a tax-on-tax situation. Okay, so now we get this escalator thing that's going in. So in April, you said, April, we start to get a new tax that is going to go on top of the 47%. What's it going to go up to, first of all? How much is it going up? Let me just back up. The escalator is what was brought in last year's budget, and it applies to the federal excise rate, which all brewers pay, and ultimately beer drinkers pay. And what they did was they put in a mechanism so that Every April 1st, it's baked right into the legislation. Every April 1st, that tax rate is going to go up. And when that goes up, it juices up liquor board markups, GST, and PST. Do we know how much it's going up? This year it's going up, so the excise duty rate is going up by 1.5%, and then that'll be amplified by the PST and the GST and the liquor board markups as well. And it's not just one time. This is going to happen every single year, and it's not. there's no requirement for the government to tell Canadians that this is happening or have a conversation about the, it, its, its, uh, its effect on the pocketbooks of beer-drinking Canadians or on the industry. So presumably, if this could happen every single year, and we're starting now at 47%, and it's a, let's say it stays at 1.5% a year, that means that in 10 years, it goes up another 15%. We're up closing in on 70% on our taxes that we're on a case of beer. Yeah, so it's, the, it's, the, it's a percentage increase on the excise duty rate that the brewer pays. So it won't go up that fast, but it will compound as it goes through the pricing mechanism with the liquor board markups and PST and GST, absolutely. There will be more tax being charged to consumers uh, as we go forward, if we, unless we can put a, a stop to this escalator tax that was brought in last year, Did which this- is what we're working on. Well, Luke, did this thing slide through? Like, was was this a standalone tax that was brought in that we just weren't paying attention to, or was this in some sort of omnibus bill that happened to go through, and that's why a lot of people didn't hear about it or didn't so pay attention it was, to it? It was part of last year's budget. So last year, the federal budget increased excise duties by 2%, and they also brought in this escalator so that it would go up every year and they wouldn't have to talk about it. It would just happen automatically. And uh, we did um, object to it when it came out. We were fine with the the 2%. We focused our energy on trying to repeal the excise escalator. There was uh, uh, quite a bit of support for uh, our position um, from beer drinkers as well as from uh, lawmakers in Ottawa. And, but ultimately, uh, the government was able to push the legislation through. And so that's why we've launched axthebeertax.ca so that Canadian beer drinkers and Canadian brewers can get in and uh, go sign a petition and tell the government that they need to stop this escalator tax. 
You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. How much, how much of an issue is this? How much beer do Canadians actually drink? I mean, we always think we're a big beer-drinking country, are we? We are. Uh, the, the beer is the, uh, the largest of the three uh, uh, beverage alcohol categories, wine and spirits being the other two. We make up about uh, 41%, 42% of total sales. And uh, but the um, uh, and, and Canada is really good at making beer. It's actually a, a really uh, good news story from a from a production standpoint. Eighty five percent of the beer that Canadians drink here in Canada is actually made here in Canada. Uh, somewhat different than a lot of other food manufacturing industries, but we're still very local. All our malting barley growing on the prairies in. Um, in uh, Alberta and mainly Saskatchewan. Uh, but what we've seen over the course of the last 10 years is a 10% decline in per capita beer consumption and a relatively flat beer market with a declining market share. And we're a big uh, economic contributor. And uh, we feel that the taxes and the direction that the government is going with hiking taxes uh, more and more every year automatically is going to have a negative effect, not just on our on beer drinkers and their pocketbooks, but also on the industry and its ability to invest in their plants and their facilities and, and their people. Well, and one of the things somebody might say is, okay, well, if your beer, if beer drinking is going down, regardless of whether it's taxes or whatever else, put some beer on sale, drop the prices, get people back drinking again. The problem, or one of the issues here, is that there is a, as I understand it, a bottom limit. You can't drop the price of beer below a certain rate, as I understand. Is that correct? It depends on the province. Every province is a little bit different, uh, but there are provinces, and Ontario is one, where they do have what they call a social reference price. Those are what government sets in place as part of uh, a myriad of different policies uh, in order to, um, as a social uh, responsibility initiative or policy. To to protect us from ourselves, essentially. Yeah, right. I mean, honestly, and, and so when I mean, everyone around here remembers when Teresa Cassioli had Lake uh, Lakeport, and it was a buck a beer for a while. I don't think you can do that anymore, can you? In Ontario? No, uh, not in Ontario. Uh, I think the minimum price is around uh, uh, that the government sets is around thirty three, thirty four dollars now. Huh. All right. Um, where do we rank I should, them? I should add that the taxes on a case of beer that are at the lower end of the price spectrum would make up much more than that 47%. It would be, I don't have the exact number, but it would be a higher percentage of the, of the price of those uh, particular brands. So if we're paying 47%, and, and I think a lot of people are right now shaking their heads saying that seems like an awful lot, uh, where do we rank as far as other countries? Do other countries have policies like this and taxes like this? Canada is one of the most um, aggressively taxed uh, beer-drinking jurisdictions in the world, third highest in the world, actually. Uh-huh. And our neighbors to the south, as you opened up the program with, uh, they enjoy, um, uh, or their beer drinkers there enjoy significantly lower tax rates. And it's actually going to get worse. Uh, the, the, the U.S. government, just on ja- effective January 1st, 2018, has actually lowered the excise duty, the federal excise duty rate on, on beer uh, made in the United States while we're going in the exact opposite direction. Uh, come April 1st, um, the federal excise duty rate that a Canadian brewer pays is going to be 90% higher than what a U.S. brewer pays. And all of that obviously gets passed on to the consumer in higher beer prices. 
Luke, I know you got to take another call, so I'm going to let you go, but I really appreciate you doing this today. Thanks so much for taking the time. All right, thank you, Scott, for having me on your show. It is, um, here's, the, here's the part about this that is going to drive a lot of people crazy. It really is. A, I think Luke is correct that we do in this country, we drink a lot of beer. Canadians like to drink a lot of beer. That's, you know, that's what we do. That's part of the culture, part of the Canadian thing. And it's also, I don't think, necessarily seen as a high-class thing or a low-class thing. In fact, I would say that beer drinking is probably kind of a middle-class thing. It's what people in all the different areas do. Well, this is a country that, as I recall, for the last, I don't know how many years now, and not just with this federal government, everybody who runs for federal office now, and not even just federal office, Every office says, we're all about the middle class. We are all about the middle class. Everybody says they're about the middle class. Nobody can define the middle class. No one actually will put any numbers beside the middle class. But everybody says they're for the middle class. And yet here you got something that appeals or affects the middle class, and you are at a 47% and rising tax rate. But let me throw one other thing in here. You do know what's coming up, right? There's, I mean, people will talk about this as a syntax. That's, you know, that's what they call these kind of things. We have another syntax or thing that will have a syntax applied to it coming soon. You know that we're heading towards legalized marijuana. Hmm. What do you think the chances are? If we're paying 47% on beer right now, taxes, what do you think the chances are that we're going to be paying well, not me, I'm not buying any, but whoever goes out and buys the legal marijuana is going to be, maybe not right away, maybe not immediately, but pretty darn soon going to be paying more and more and more taxes because the government's going to look at this and say, hey, we can squeeze more dollars out of them. Hey, we can get more. Hey, we can put in a law that gives us this and we can have this. And you don't think anyone out there who thinks that the government is opening up the recreational marijuana business simply so you can enjoy a doobie on the dock up at the cottage in peace is missing the point. They are doing this to squeeze dollars, tax dollars out of you. And if we're paying 47% for beer, just wait and see. Maybe not right away. might take five years, might take 10 years. But those of you who are going to imbibe in your legalized marijuana... Just wait and see what you're paying for taxes on that stuff. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. We bring in Don Robertson of the Dundas Real McCoys and Calm Choice Realty and a variety of other functions and things we don't need to applications talk about. through the greater Dundas region. Enjoyer of Christmas on the Beach. I still can't get over that you did that. I still think that's... Uh, Almost anti-Canadian, but I'm only saying that because I'm completely jealous. <laughs> it was pretty cool. I was surprised how many people were down there. It was like another day down there. Oh, I, I have no doubt. I, I have am. now fully decided um, that Thanksgiving is a far bigger deal in the U.S. than Christmas is. It really is. I mean, they talk about it all the time, and Christmas just comes after Thanksgiving down there. Well, is it a bigger deal? I don't know if it's a bigger deal, but it's it's a bigger much, celebration. It's much bigger than we have for Thanksgiving. You say that? Yeah, in comparison, there's no question about it. But they 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 make it a bigger deal. I mean, Christmas is still Christmas, right? But but you know what else is with Thanksgiving? It's football. You eat football. Fourteen thousand calories of turkey and stuffing. Black Friday. 
and then you shop, or you shop before. I get no. Thursday is Thanksgiving. Friday is Black Friday, but Thursday is also jammed yep. full of football. Usually with the Detroit Lions, who are perpetually horrendous. So you get to watch them. Cowboys stink, and the Cowboys sometimes good, sometimes not. But l- let's talk football for a second. Did you watch the Vikings game? You, you've seen the. You've seen the. I, I was watching it. The highlight. You I saw flipped it. it on, and I went, "Well, they're toast." One of the funny things that I find about pro sports, not just football, about any pro sports, is if the last play of the game is great, the game goes down as a classic. Doesn't matter what the rest of the game was. You could have had 59 minutes and 45 seconds of sheer boredom, but if you can somehow pull off a fantastic final play, oh, that game was a, uh, that's that's a classic game. I like the quick comparison to the helmet toss to Joey Bat's bat toss. That was, honestly, that was with the reaction in there, not even with that, just even just the score. That was the first comparison, comparative that I thought of. I thought Minnesota scoring that in their stadium was their equivalent of Joey Bats with the bat toss. Absolutely. Yeah, it was, and it was at home, as uh, was uh, Batista's home run. I mean, those things are, I don't think it makes a game memorable, but you're right, everybody tries to morph them into classics and everything else, but... Uh, it's always exciting and spectacular when the home team wins on the last play of the game. You know what else? And that, not very often you see a walk-off, and no. I don't know what else to call it. No, no, that's what in it was. the NFL. Yeah. They had to lug those poor slugs from uh, um, New, Orleans. New Orleans back out that, so they could drop stupid. the knee. I, which is stupid. Just, you know, the game is over. Why do you have to kick the extra point? Who fix cares? Fix that rule. They didn't even try. They just dropped to the knee, right? Except that, you know... The fact that the extra point affected some betting lines in Vegas. Oh, hey, there was a lot of guys counting their dough when uh, Vikings were down to their last play. And some might suspect the guy that kind of folded like a cheap suitcase underneath uh, the pass. Uh, no, I'm not, I don't, I don't I think don't. he thinks that's smart, but it sure looked like there's got to be a lot of guys ready to shoot him last night. Yeah, I, that, that was, I, I, no, he was not doing that on purpose. I assure you of that, but nonetheless, he's, uh, he's, he's not a guy who is getting any free meals <laughs> in New Orleans as a member of the, uh, the no, saints no. this week. He'll be in Buffalo next But year. you know what else that reminded me of that play? Uh, and this is not a popular happy one for Hamilton people. Henry Burris to Greg Ellingson in double coverage to knock Hamilton out of the playoffs a couple of years ago when the Red Blacks stormed back and on the last play of the game went down and scored. That that was... That wasn't... Your, that wasn't oh, two years ago they won the Grey Cup. No, they didn't. Hamilton hasn't... Well, no, sorry, Ottawa. Yeah. Yeah, and it was, the, I think, it was the year... Yeah, was it that year or the year before? That was two years ago, I guess. Anyway, whatever it was, I saw that and I thought, you know what, that... Minnesota is feeling like Ottawa was that day, and New Orleans is feeling like Hamilton was that yeah. day because it was a very similar play. But my question on this one, as I was watching this, and I've trying to been trying to decide this all day, and I really can't decide that play as part of it, but not alone. Did Minnesota win that game, or did New Orleans lose that game? When you watch a game like that, do you, at the end of it, do you say, man, they blew it? Or do you say, man, they came back in an amazing way? What's your leaning on that one? Well, New Orleans had two defenders in the area. It wasn't like he was standing there all by himself. No, somebody didn't fall down in coverage and leave the guy wide open. Absolutely um, sheer luck that it unfolded the way it did. He stayed in bounds, and that was within inches. 
So I mean, they had the they had deep covered off, but it didn't work. I think the defenders were scared to death to get called for pass interference because it was in field goal range. If you hit him there and get pass You're interference, giving up a there. field goal. So they said, "I don't. If I screw this up, they're going to score a field goal." Not likely thinking if I screw this up, they're going to score a touchdown, and we're really in trouble. Yeah, I. I mean, my my inclination. Maybe it's the cup glass half full or glass half empty thing was in that particular case. I don't I didn't look at that like Minnesota won. See when when we talk about the Bautista thing, a home run to me is vastly different. Uh, hitting a home run even if someone serves you a fastball right down the it's middle and bolt straight. It's you've still got to hit that ball out. You still have to time it and square it up and everything else. Well, Catch, Minnesota did everything they had to do. They well, executed perfectly. I I agree. But so to how me, do they not win it to when me, you execute perfectly? Catching a football, put it this way, I can catch a football. You can catch a football. Neither of us can hit a home run on a 95-mile-an-hour pitch, even if it's right down the middle. And Well, I'm not sure I could have caught that football. Uh, well, I don't Perhaps know. Perhaps you could have, but in uh, front of uh, 90,000 people with two I'm guys not, all over I'm me and saying, leaping into the air. I'm not saying it's it's as easy, but I'm just looking at the one with Bautista. I think there are that one, he had to win that. The, even if the other guy made all the mistakes in the world, it wasn't a little league home run where you hit a ground ball and they start booting it around the infield and they scored. He did what he had to do. And I, I know Minnesota did too. I just Bautista looked at, did what he does so. It's not like the guy that hit that home run has, was hitting his third of the year. No, I know. I, I The difference is I felt when Bautista hit that home run, I felt like Toronto won. I felt like the Blue Jays won. They still had two innings to go. When I saw this one, I felt like the Saints had blown it. I think that kind of shows you the difference between football and baseball to the extent that football really is a team game. Right? you got to have time to throw the ball. you got to get open. Somebody else has got to be doing something to distract the defenders. I mean, it's not like... Everybody knew where the pass was going. The quarterback likely didn't know where the pass was going, mm-hmm. other than deep. So there was a lot. There's a lot of moving parts to make a play successful in football. Batista just had to hit, had to have a round object hit another round object out of the ballpark. That's tough to do. It's a team game. the uh, The home runs an individual. Uh, well, baseball is a one on one sport in a team concept. Football, as you say, every every play is different. Every guy is moving in a different direction at all times. One of the offensive linemen missing an assignment on that play, the game's over. Yeah, I just can't get I just can't get myself to not say that Minnesota lucked out in that case. That that it, see, there's nothing lucky to me about hitting a home run. You don't luck out and hit a home run unless you're Aaron Judge, who's like six foot eight and two hundred and thirty pounds, and he can hit a pop fly that sometimes goes out. But even then, he still has to hit it hard. You can't luckily hit. You can't fluke a home run. No, but you can fluke a touchdown, and that. And I really believe this was a had had New Orleans defenders done anything right. I said to Bill Kelly this morning. I was we were chatting, and I said the tackle that you should make in that case is you don't even have to hit him as soon as the ball lands in his hands. Let him catch it. When you're saying you don't want to take a pass interference penalty, I agree with you. But you can let that let him catch the ball and stay a yard off him because you've got two defenders there. Yeah. And then bear hug him. This is the kind of tackle you would do in a walkthrough before the game when you're not wearing pads. You don't even have to hit him. You just have to body you have to bear hug him and run timeout. Well, you're you're re- really making 
no, New Orleans I, look bad. You, I, make, well, you, I, you make that sound awfully simple. I think that particular play, I think you would ask a million football defensive backs how they would play that play, and they would all say what I just said, and they, none of them would say, I'm going to go in there and try and put a kill shot on on the last play. There was no None of them to, would have said they would have played it the way it was well, played. Well, no, but you didn't need to go in to destroy the guy. You just needed to control him. He had, still had to go another 35 yards. You All you had to do was grab onto him and take him down. You didn't have to blow him up. I think the only play they had clearly is is to knock the ball down. Because even if he catches it, it's probably automatic field goal. You lose the game. No, but if you no no, but if you had kept him in de- in bounds, time would have run out before they could have lined up. And unlike in Canada where you have to play a play at the end of zeros, if the time runs out in the NFL, the game is over. If they had tackled him in bounds, Time would have run out. Minnesota could never have gotten to the line, got their kicker on, and got set up in time, and they were out of timeouts. They could never have done it. No, they didn't have any time. Like he, so it, so you. I don't even know where the clock was when he ran. It started that that play started at ten seconds, and he caught it at about six. Yep. But if you tackle him at six seconds, that means the entire team has six seconds. The ref has to run and pick up the ball. Put it to the center of the field. You have to get your team on and your team off and set up your field goal and snap the ball in six seconds. It's impossible. Interestingly, in the NFL, even even if you did that and the quarterback dropped back, kicking it through the end zone gets no points. No. In Canada, you could do that. We don't have to because the play stops. Well, that's a whole other point. I, I, if, well, we got an hour. No, but I... I'm glad the NFL doesn't have that point. I'm sorry. I know a lot of Canadians love the Rouge. I hate the Rouge. I despise the Rouge. There's no way you should get a point for just hoofing a ball past the end zone. I don't mind if you have to put it through the end zone. I don't like getting a point. When you miss a field when goal? When you miss a field goal. That's rewarding. Uh, not that's, only should you that's not. like winning a silver medal and throwing it in the stands. Yeah. Not only should you not get a point for missing a field goal in the CFL. If you're a field goal kicker and you miss, huh. you should not only not get the point, you should have to do like 500 push-ups before you're allowed to come back on the or field. Or if it's or inside the 30-yard line, you lose three. <laughs> well, yeah, you know what? There. Now there's a good idea. Yeah, I'm full of them. No, there. You know what? I like that. There is a good idea. If in, in the CFL, if you're trying a field goal, because remember the post, the field goal post is at the front of the goal, is at the goal line. So it's not like the NFL where it's an extra 10 yards. So a 35 yard or less field goal, if you miss, you lose three points. I really like that idea. I think the more fair way to do it, and this is going to be hard to believe, that was kind of off the top of I my head. I love it. I love but, it. I think a more fair thing to do is, since you'd likely get a point if it goes through the end zone, you, not only do you not get that point, but you only lose one. It's hard to penalize them the full three, but maybe they're listening. Maybe they'll change that rule. But I think penalizing them by a point for missing or, you know, is I'd kind love, of interesting. I would, you know what I'd really love to be involved in? If the XFL, we've heard the XFL is going to come back with Vince McMahon from wrestling, professional wrestling. He did the XFL once. Go watch the 30 for 30 documentary. You'll see it on TSN occasionally. It's a fantastic documentary about this crazy league that he started up. I would love to be in the boardroom to come up with the new rules if they bring it back. And you've just touched on something. So you miss a field goal for the next possession. I get to pick one player on your team, on your offense, who's not allowed to play. We'll be quarterback every time. Well, maybe, but sure. 
Maybe unless you've got a bad quarterback, then I'm going to take out someone else who's who's the, come up with crazy stuff. Let's try some. The only way the XFL. I don't know how we got into the XFL from where we started, but that's okay. The crazy only way rules. the XFL XFL is going to work is if you make it so hilariously interesting by having different rules and stuff like that. Because if you just play football. Well, if you just play football, the, the traditionalists will c- compare you to the NFL exactly, and you'll die. Exactly. You can't let yourself be compared to the other leagues. You have to do something so different. Now, the last time they did it, they did a lot of things. The amazing thing about the XFL, if again, if you go back and watch, there's a lot of stuff the NFL pinched from the XFL. The NFL poo-pooed the whole idea and then stole a bunch of ideas from them that they liked. Remember the USFL. Well, they can get Trump to buy a team. He's not going to be busy in a couple of years. Well, we'll see. But, I mean, the, the overhead camera, you know the camera angle yep. that you now see yeah, on the, the wires? Yeah, do that. Yeah. That was an XFL thing. The camera on the field attached to the guy who's running from the huddle, that was an XFL they won't thing. Be doing, they won't be doing that with wires soon. They'll be doing it with drones. Probably. And that'll be great the first time a punt drills a drone out of the sky. Well, you would think they'd keep him behind. Well, but. that's... Anyway, I that would be see. I think you and I should be on the rules committee for the XFL if they bring it back because I think you're take away three points and not a, and you get to pick a guy, a personal same thing. If it's a personal foul, and my guy is injured and he has to go off for three plays, I get to pick one of your guys to go off for three plays. If you bring a bottle of white chardonnay, the rules will get better too. <laughs> There's so many things you could do with football if you're willing to completely. Throw it into a blender and take the basic concept of what football is about and say, let's try some fun stuff. And I think the XFL would be perfect for that because no one's going to take, no one's taking it seriously to begin with, except for some of the players. No one's taking it seriously. So let's have some fun with it. If you want to get really creative and you want to boost scoring, you could let the defense have two less players. Or if you're behind. Uh, if you're trailing by 14 points, the team that's up has to take one player off the defense. If they're up by 21, you take two off. That would certainly get creative in the scoring aspect. No helmets? <laughs> Maybe that wouldn't be a good idea. I, I mean, I don't I, think it'll matter to some of them. Well, I, I still argue, and it'll never, ever, ever happen, and nor should it in a million years, but I still argue that playing with no helmets would probably be safer for concussions. You've heard me make the argument about hockey. Because if you have a helmet on, you are taking chances with your head that if you now know your head is not protected, you're not going to go in head first for a tackle. You're going to do a, there's a reason why, well, not a reason why, but guys in rugby don't get concussions at the same rate or Aussie rules football don't get concussions at the same rate as respect football. You have to do things differently or else you will be dead and they do it differently. Anyway, I would, I would be, uh, maybe for next week, I should write down a bunch of, some of the ideas, some of the rules I would love to have in the XFL, but there would be, you could do some fun, fun things with that league if you were willing to really go out on, on a limb. It was a couple of years ago I said that uh, when the concussions come out, we were talking about the kids and I said, there's not a minor hockey association around that will do it, but if somebody had the cojones to take the face masks off, the height and sticks would come down immediately. It was not the high stick in when I played. Of course, we were still using hickory sticks, but the you know the sticks will come down because guys are going to get cut. They're going to lose the odd tooth. I, I kids, still have. Kids I get second teeth. I still right. have my picture of uh, pictures of when on my first year playing hockey when I was five years old, playing for the Nielsen Knights, oh. and somehow back then the brilliant adults 
who had put together the rules. We had to wear helmets at that point. That was a good start. But we had those plastic mouth guards that snapped on and were really tight to your face. So, I wore one. So, but nothing over our eyes. Our parents were really concerned about our teeth, but your eyes, oh, you can do, you can live without eyes. I don't want to have to spend money at the dentist. I, my dad said, wear it on the chin. It'll keep your helmet tighter. I guess he didn't care about my teeth. Just make sure your lid doesn't fall. It's just who, who were the adults back then thinking it's really important that you keep all your teeth? Uh, maybe, maybe that was in the early days of malnutrition or scurvy or something. They didn't have blenders. If you, if you couldn't chew, you were going to starve to death. So we had to keep, you, keep your teeth in your mouth. I don't well, know. Well, guys started wearing helmets long before they started wearing jocks. Figure that out. <laughs> no, it's the other way around. It's the other way around. Yeah. No, and I still say. For the guys who- and I agree with that concept, by for, the way. For the guys who don't like wearing face shields, I've said this all along. When, you know, if you don't want to go on the ice wearing something protecting your eyes because you want to show how tough you are, I'll see how tough you are when you step on the ice without wearing a jaw. Yeah. That will show your toughness. Forget <laughs> the eyes. Don't go on there wearing something down below and then you'll have my, uh, my undying admiration for your level of toughness. I don't expect anyone to be doing that anytime soon. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Don Robertson in studio chatting sports. And Don, I am not, I don't know where you stand on this, I am not a fan of the NHL All-Star game. As a rule, generally, I find it to be completely unwatchable. Now, it's been made a little bit better by going to three-on-three in this (coughs) tournament-ish format, but by and large, the NHL All-Star game is a schmoozathon for the corporate people and for the advertisers and the sponsors and everything else, and it's got nothing to do with hockey. I don't think they try and make it anything else other than that. That said, that said, they announced the lineup, and as happens every year, they've got this rule in place that every team must have at least one player in the All-Star game. Do you support that, or do you say, no, let's just go with the best players? See, I'm, I'm, I'm of the opinion... Give me the best players. And if I don't have a guy on my team who's in the NHL all-star class, he shouldn't be going. Give me the best players and let me watch the best players play. No, I think they do it the right way. You think so? Well, I'll tell you why. Um, Your observation that it's not really a game anyway, so the best players don't have to play it. Who is the big kid that lives in Michigan that was playing in uh, St. John's in the American League? John John Scott. John Scott played in it. Two years ago, yeah. You could make an argument that perhaps he is he wouldn't have been there if the fans hadn't voted him there. Oh, you don't have to make an argument. So That's, that is the case. <laughs> well, he was in the American League. I think he spoke for himself. Then he was the MVP of the All-Star game. Because all the other players decided that they were going to make sure that he was the MVP of the All-Star game. But, but that's, yes. that speaks volumes for the event itself. It doesn't have a lot of credibility. So why do we have to have the absolute very best players there? Let every team go, even if you got a team and the guy you send couldn't make the Pittsburgh Penguins, but he's going to the All-Star game because it's a sponsor-driven event and it's for sheer entertainment. And three-on-three, three, anybody can play three-on-three three and make it entertaining. If you're really bad, it'll be entertaining because you're bad. Or if you're really skilled, it'll be. But, you know, Pittsburgh, I mean, there's some teams that could send four guys. Yep. And some teams that shouldn't send any. But based on your analogy, which is correct, then it is what it is. So every team gets to send somebody because there may be local sponsors that you're slighting. And it's all about sponsorship. 
Yeah, I I don't know. I I to me, it, if you're gonna have an all star game, make it the all stars. Well, you do have a bunch of all stars. You have some all stars. Problem is, they're not all all stars that are there, and it doesn't mean anything. Baseball have done something unique. If you win, well, they got rid of that now. But yeah, it was. If you won the game, you, you got home field advantage in the World Series. They're getting rid of that. But Why do they not phone me on this stuff? Yeah, no. It, there are guys who should be in this. I mean, uh, what's his name? The, the Leafs goalie Anderson. Has yeah. had a terrific first half of the season. The Leafs aren't even probably, um, amazingly enough, they're probably they may not even be in a playoff position if it's not for him. He's been really, really good. The first month was man, then he's been really good. Yeah. He's not going. He's not going. There's other guys. Have Jenny Malkin, who is perennially an All Star from Pittsburgh. He's not going. And why? <laughs> not because he's not having an okay year. Not he's not having a good year. We got to find someone else's spot. We got uh, this other guy that's got to go, and so who do we take out? Well, we can't not make Sidney Crosby go. He doesn't play in it anyway. Well, he generally misses them. He's either hurt or he's at the Olympics or he's hurt or... In the Bahamas. At the Olympics or something. He's not going to the... I don't think he's going to the Olympics. No, this not this year. I'm saying so he'll probably I be know. hurt by the uh, by the time that, uh, that it comes up. But Noah Hannafin who is a guy that was drafted a few years ago, Carolina's defenseman is going instead of Morgan Riley. Almost everybody, for example, would say that makes no sense. Morgan Riley is a better player, more impactful player. And is anybody in Carolina... <coughs> Pardon me. Is anybody in Carolina tuning in now to watch the All-Star game because Noah Hannafin is there? Are they saying, oh man, I was... You know what? I, I had but, some stuff to do on Saturday, but Noah Hannafin's playing in the All-Star game. we got to stay home by the TV and watch that. You analyzed what the All-Star game is when you started talking about it. So you can't be surprised that every team gets represented. And they do have 18,000 fans on a fairly regular basis in Carolina that are entitled to think that they have a guy at the All-Star game because it's on NBC. Well, the only time they have 18,000 in Carolina is when the state when the arena on the scoreboard has spillover seating for the NASCAR races and they have to show the races up on the scoreboard, I think. Or when it's or when the Duke is playing North Carolina and they have yeah. nowhere else to sit them in basketball. Some of those teams have done well though. Uh, Tampa Bay do well. I and, do. and you got a guy from Tampa Bay there. And then maybe they should have two. They should probably have three or four. Yeah, they probably should. Well, Hedman makes it easy. That's probably why the kid from Carolina is going. But part of the other thing with an all-star game is if you have big-name guys, that also, to me, sells the game. So even though I, I stand by what I said about the fact that it's generally really boring hockey, at least if you had... Imagine back in the day, in the 80s, when the Oilers had Gretzky, Curry, Anderson, Messier, Coffey, Fuhr... Who am I forgetting out of that group? Uh, and you said, yeah, there's only room for two of you. But we're going to take somebody from the last place team in the NHL because he's got to be able to go. No, that would be idiotic. You'd but say, it, no, I want to see the Oilers guys. That reminds me, and you've heard it probably a hundred times, Jim Ralph telling me 15 years ago how he was going to explain to his son why he never played in the NHL and how good he was in the American League. And he said, I'm going to look at him and say, son, but that's back when it was only 21 teams. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, right? So if you're taking a guy half each team now, you now need 31 players. And there's going to be... And it's only three on three. And there's four teams of two or three lines each. I mean, yeah. there's not a lot of spots. I mean, the only thing they can do is expand the rosters, but three on three you can't. You don't need that many more. Look, it's a fun corporate event, and you're not going to fix it. 
You're not. I mean, no, that that seems. Nobody's to be, ever going to respect an All Star game. I don't ever think any of them are going down as one of the greatest games ever played. Like, was it '76 Moscow and uh, the Red Army and mm-hmm. Montreal Canadiens? So New Year's Eve, whatever year it was. Bobby Myers from Copetown refereed it. Did he do that game? Yep. Did not know that. You do now. One of his uh, two claims to fame. He's got three. What's the other one? Well, I was thinking of he was the referee in the Don Cherry Too Many Men on the Ice game, although he didn't make the call, but he was the referee that game. You know how many guys were on the ice? No. Seven. So it wasn't that tough a call to make. <laughs> Grapes told me, I, it was a long time ago at the All-Star game in, in Toronto, and I told him uh, Myers was a buddy of mine, and I said, uh, he said, he didn't call it. I said, I know. He said, they didn't call it until we only had six on the ice. <laughs> you know the other one is? No. The towel. Oh, with Roger Nielsen? With Roger Nielsen in is Vancouver. Bob Myers as well? I did yeah. not know that. When he waved yeah. the white towel and then that was in Roger the Nielsen was re- replacing Harry Neal, who was sick. 1982? Uh, no, no, no. It was uh, it was still the Islanders and it was the Islanders. Yeah, probably about 82 would have been the uh, the Stanley Cup finals against the Islanders. I remember what I had for breakfast. Yeah, so Richard, Richard Brodeur was playing yeah, net. King Richard. Stan Schmiel was the captain with Harold Snips. But Roger Nielsen had replaced uh, Harry Neal for some reason, and Harry Neal left him on the bench because that's back when he was coaching GM. And he got up, and Myers was doing that game too. Is that right? Well, see, I knew Bob had done a lot of stuff, but uh, there you go. Mm-hmm. A lot more than you think. We'll, get, we'll have to get Bob in here one of these days. He, he would be a lot of fun to have in here, and he rents a f- wonderful apple orchard in Copetown, Ontario. He does, and he was the inaugural commissioner of the Colonial Hockey League. Yes, he was. <laughs> <laughs> to his great dismay. Yeah, he's not ha- he reminds me of why did you get me into that at one point. Someday, maybe that's what i got to have in here, just to tell Colonial Hockey League oh stories. Oh, God. That was a league, uh, what, what did you call it one time, once upon a time, the league for misfit players? I, I called it a lot of things. <laughs> I was the chairman of the board when I made the statement. It wasn't for publication. But. Uh, no, it was, uh, that was, for anyone who doesn't know, there's a league now in the States called the United <laughs> Hockey League. It is probably close, if it isn't the first stop on the hockey food chain, it's pretty close to it. And it started as the Colonial Hockey League with Brantford and Thunder, Thunder Bay. Bay and St. Thomas. And I can't remember what the other places Flint were. And Detroit. It's a five-team league to start with. And if you saw, if you ever saw Slapshot, you're not far off from what this league was. Not far off. I introduced at a board of governors meeting uh, in Muskegon one day, and they were trying to. We we're always trying to figure out how to fill the rinks, right? And I, I was sitting there, and I thought Bob was going to have a heart attack. I said, "Look at this. May not be politically correct, but why don't we permit five fights before you're thrown out?" <laughs> Well, all the all the owners are listening, trying to think, how can we justify this? Like, how can we sell this? And uh, then the Quebec League, there's a minor, it was a minor pro league in Quebec that may still be operating mm-hmm, the, that guaranteed you five fights a night, or you get your money back. I got to go to commercial, but I'll just say this because I covered in Brantford once upon a time <laughs> the league when it started up, and I'm not going to mention any names because I'll be sued if I do. But there was an interview I had to do after a game one time with one particular, not the brightest guy I've ever met in my life as far as a hockey player goes. I I had to interview him after the game. And the dressing room for the Brantford team opened into the arena proper. So you just, you walked in, like in most arenas, you walk in by the seats and you just turn and you go in the door to the dressing room. There's no back entrance or something. 
And this player, I said, I want to talk to so-and-so, and he comes out, and he is not wearing a stitch of clothing. He is right out of the shower, dripping wet, buck naked. There are still fans milling around in the arena, and I was like, do you want to get a towel or something? He's like, no, I'm good. And it was the shortest interview I've ever done because <laughs> A, I was really uncomfortable and B, I thought, I don't want to be responsible for you dying of pneumonia. We could. Uh, and, I, and I won't say who it was, but I bet you could guess. Oh, I know who it is. <laughs> I traded him. Um, you should tell him the story. Uh, I don't know if we can about, uh, when, when you went to Thunder Bay with us in the play, it was the playoffs, I think. It was the playoffs and I ended up in a restaurant or a bar, I guess, after the game getting something to eat with the goalie for the Brantford team, literally with his head on my shoulder crying. It, I, that was a new one to me. Who had dressed uh, as an emergency goaltender for two games for the Toronto Maple Leafs that year. Yep. And then he got into a fight in the game and another player ripped his mask off and started beating him with it and then threw it into the stands. <laughs> it was quite a league. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.